everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I've got my brother and producer, Joel, here in the studio with me. Today, we're going down under to Perth, Australia, where we are going to be examining the absolutely brutal Morehouse murders, which were committed by serial killer couple David and Catherine Bernie. This is an absolutely brutal story, I must say. And it takes place in a actually a very beautiful city in Australia. A couple of years ago, I actually was lucky enough to go to Australia and visit for the first time. I didn't make it over to Perth because Perth is on the West Coast. Oh, okay. Australia is like a very interesting continent mm-hmm. because in the middle of the continent is just vast openness, just yeah. space. Nothing There's but trees and just open lands. Just like yeah plains like desert and plains and it's just wide open a lot of country agricultural Mm. farmland ranching things like that yeah and i know you mentioned on our ivan millette episode but you went to sydney and you know a few other places over there in australia uh, melbourne which is on the southern Uh tip of australia and then i went up to a place called canes which is very tropical and that's where i actually uh, went on a snorkel trip to the Great Barrier oh, Reef. That sounds which so is cool. cool. Yeah. But I never I've never made it to the West Coast yet, which is where this this story takes place. Uh here it's very beautiful and I hope to get there one day. And uh maybe I'll even get to visit uh the infamous Morehouse. Before we get into the Morehouse murders though, I wanted to remind everybody that we do have a few merch items left out there. I believe it's down to some grinders, a couple hats. And yeah. stickers that are left at malharmerch.com. And uh, we are going to be planning our new merch drop here very soon. So if you have any ideas on you know what types of items, or maybe you're a designer out there and you have been thinking, oh, I could make some really cool merch designs for us, we are always on the lookout for artists. So make sure you hit us up at LOP at malhar.com if you're interested in you know maybe designing some stuff for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'd be really, really dope. And yeah, just any suggestions you have on, th- on items you might want to see from us in our next collection. So that is going to be, you know, starting to take place here very soon. And all of our merch is still 30% off. Yes, right? that's yeah. correct. So. Yeah, the items that are left are 30% off. And once right. they're gone, they're gone. We're not restocking anything. So if you want to go take a look, again, it's malharmerch.com. Also, if you haven't tried CBD before, highly recommend it. Helps you chill out, especially when listening to these uh, very, very crazy episodes that we've been putting out <laughs> lately uh, can definitely help mellow you out that's higherlovewellness.com everything is made right here in colorado and picked by me so you know it's good shit oh so, really good shit yeah. yeah definitely a great thing to add to your uh, supplement routine every day uh-huh i uh, can't speak highly enough of hemp and cbd but yeah this episode of the podcast is actually brought to you by pretty litter every plate and bartleby learned baby so <laughs> Let's not waste any more time and let's just jump right into the story of David and Catherine Bernie. So we're going to begin our story on November 10th, 1986, and 17-year-old Kate Moore had escaped certain death. She ran up to a man standing outside a store in Fremantle, which is a city or suburb in Perth, Australia. She was wearing only black leggings and a singlet, and she frantically told the man to call the police. She said if a woman tried to claim she's her daughter, don't believe her. I've been raped. 
The man took her to Palmyra Police Station, which is a small station in Perth, and she tried to tell the officers that she had been kidnapped, raped, and tortured by an insane couple. She was then taken to an interview room to wait for an officer to take her statement. Senior police officers then sent Laura Hancock to go and talk to Kate. She was a 22-year-old rookie who had never taken a statement from a victim before. She was also the only female officer on duty at the time. Sending someone fresh out of the police academy to interview Kate was a clear sign that they likely doubted her story. Kate was in complete shock, and she showed almost no emotion and recited her story as if it had happened to someone else. She was noticeably exhausted and looked like she had been through hell. She provided such specific details about what happened to her that Laura knew, without a doubt, she was telling the truth. Kate said she was kidnapped by a man and a woman at knife point, and she described the couple, their car, and the house they took her to. She also described in great detail about being raped and tortured before she was able to make a daring escape. Laura tried several times to get senior officers to take Kate's story seriously, but they just didn't believe her until Kate revealed that she had a name, a man named David Burney, who was a known criminal. And that's when these police officers finally realized, okay, she might just be telling the truth. David John Burney was born on February 16th, 1951, and he grew up in a semi-rural suburb of Perth, Australia. His parents, John and Margaret, were abusive alcoholics, so much so that their pastor advised them not to get married because only tragedy would ever come of this. Margaret had a reputation for being vulgar and promiscuous, and it was even rumored that she traded things like rides and taxis for sexual favors. John, on the other hand, was an unhappy and unattractive man, and people thought one of the reasons he was so miserable, and this was a rumor, was because he had a small penis. He was also physically handicapped, and he had trouble walking, and he stuttered so bad he could hardly speak. David Burney was the oldest of five children to Margaret and John, and all the kids were put into foster care by Child Protective Services multiple times. Even as an infant, David was severely neglected. The family attended Wattle Grove Baptist Church, where they were known as the problematic and dysfunctional family. And there were even rumors that went around that there was incest within the family. As young as three years old, David's Sunday school teacher could tell he was troubled and violent. David was 10 when his parents got divorced. He was then responsible for his younger siblings most of the time. Their house was always filthy and the kids were on their own for meals. David's family moved to another Perth suburb when he was about 12 years old. And it was there he met a girl in the neighborhood named Catherine Harrison. And he was instantly drawn to her. Catherine Margaret Harrison was born on May 23rd, 1951 to parents Doreen and Harold. And she was just a few months younger than David. When she was two, her mother died giving birth to her baby brother, who then died a few days later. Catherine briefly lived with her father in South Africa. But Harold decided he didn't want to be a single father. So he sent her back to Australia to live with his late wife's parents. And there were also rumors that Harold had been abusing his daughter. Her grandparents were very strict and rarely let her leave the house. When her grandmother had an epileptic seizure, Catherine was shipped off again to stay with her aunt and uncle. When she was 10 years old, Harold decided he wanted custody and fought to get his daughter back. He ended up winning full custody and she moved back in with him. Needless to say, Catherine had already dealt with a ton of rejection and abandonment issues by the time she met David. And the two of them actually started dating when they were about 14 years old. David was smart and charming. 
He was also well-read and knew a lot about politics, science, and history. Catherine, on the other hand, was shy and reserved. But David actually digged this. And they spent all of their time together and eventually started getting into trouble with the law for breaking and entering and petty theft. Harold tried to keep Catherine away from David, believing he was a bad influence on her. But nothing worked. Catherine always went back to him. But then David and his siblings were taken out of their home for good this time. They were placed in different foster homes. And him and Catherine lost touch. After this, David never spoke to his parents again and blamed them for all of his issues later on in life. When he was 15, he left his foster home and dropped out of school. He then moved into a boarding house and took a job as an apprentice jockey at Ascot Racecourse, which was a horse racing track. Other workers knew David liked to hurt the horses, kicking and punching them, and he also exhibited increasingly bizarre, bothersome behaviors. One night, he snuck into the room of an elderly woman who lived in the boarding house. David was naked with stockings over his face, and he tried to rape her. He was then fired from the racetrack when his boss found out what had happened. And by this time, David had already had a lengthy criminal record and had even served time for the misdemeanors and felonies he committed. David also developed multiple fetishes, including having a huge collection of pornography and was allegedly addicted to sex. He even claimed that he had to have sex every day. One night, he told his younger brother James that he hadn't had sex for a few days and asked if they could have sex together. James said no, of course, but that night, he woke up to David trying to rape him, his own brother. At some point, James and David were cellmates in prison, which is when they likely started a sexual relationship. James was in prison for sexually assaulting his six-year-old niece, who he said had led him on. He even told a reporter that you don't know what they can be like. Once they were out, though, David kept going to James whenever he needed a release, and no women were available. Meanwhile, Catherine had also dropped out of school. She took a job as a machinist in a factory making window blinds. Her and David got back in touch and went right back to committing crimes together. This is absolutely insane, but on David's brother's 21st birthday, he said that he could have sex with Catherine. And Catherine was obviously hesitant at first, but David is able to convince her to go along with this because David actually enjoyed watching his wife and brother have sex. And this happened to be James's first sexual experience with a woman. Also, during this session, David injected the tip of James' penis with cocaine using a hypodermic needle, claiming that this would give him a better orgasm. Couldn't even imagine that being your first ex sexual experience and your brother is injecting your penis with cocaine. Yeah, what the fuck? That sounds so painful, oh too. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine how that went down. Ugh. But the couple focused on stealing more expensive items in order to fund a future together. They were caught in June 1969 and pled guilty to 11 counts of breaking and entering and burglary. They had taken $3,000 worth of stolen items and tried to break into a safe at a drive-in movie theater. As a result of the crimes, David was sentenced to nine months in prison and Catherine got probation. At the time, she was pregnant with another man's baby. The noticeable pregnancy likely helped her get a more lenient sentence. But soon it came to light that they had committed eight additional counts of burglary and breaking and entering. David was then sentenced to three more years in prison, and Catherine was sentenced to four years of probation. David actually broke out of prison, and they were together again briefly before he was sent back 
in order to finish out his sentence. Catherine served six months and even had her baby in jail, which was immediately taken from her by Child Protective Services. By the time David was released, everything had changed for Catherine. Her parole officer encouraged her, you know what, you should probably stay away from David. After she was released, he helped her find work as a nanny and housekeeper for the McLaughlin family. She also got her child back and started seeing one of the sons, David McLaughlin, and she actually got pregnant with him and even got married on her 21st birthday. She then gave birth to their son, Donnie Jr., but when he was an infant, he was hit by a car in their driveway and killed. Catherine watched her son die and was absolutely traumatized by this experience. She then had six more kids with Donald, but after a back injury, he was no longer able to support them. They then had to move into government housing, and Catherine had to care for her husband and all of the children by herself. And she had no idea how to take care of the kids or the house, and they were literally raised in squalor with almost no rules or discipline. Meanwhile, David's out there, just rolling around, where he met a woman named Carrie in 1972. And they actually got married and had a daughter named Tanya. He was doing much better than Catherine and seemed to enjoy spending time with his family and raising his daughter. But around 1978, David suffered a head injury at work and his personality started to change. He became emotionally abusive and started having affairs with young women and girls. And around their 10th year of marriage, he brought home a 16-year-old girlfriend and announced that she was moving in. Tanya was told to stay in her mother's room while David and his girlfriend took over her room. Carrie packed her things and left with Tanya. Once his wife and daughter were gone, he decided, you know what? Screw them. I want Catherine back. So in 1983, he tracked her down in a hospital where she was recovering from a hysterectomy. And Donald came to visit his wife. And there he found David holding Catherine's hand. Again, Catherine was married and had six kids, but none of that mattered to David. And just four weeks after giving birth to Donald's child, the two of them started having an affair. Catherine then decided to divorce her husband two years later. She called Donald and told him she wasn't coming home. And that was it. She just left. She left her husband, abandoned her children, and cut off contact with the rest of her family just to be with David. She never actually legally married David, but she took his last name. And they moved into a new home at 3 Morehouse Street in Willoughby a working-class suburb of Perth. After they moved in, their neighbors viewed them, you know, as quiet and polite. But inside the house, it was nothing but chaos. They were doing drugs like heroin and experimenting with all sorts of wild sex. David expected Catherine to have sex with him at least six times a day, but it was never enough for him. He had an insatiable sexual appetite. He also expected her to participate in his kinks and fetishes. He injected a numbing agent into his penis to make him last longer. And David continued to be in and out of jail. And soon, he started having fantasies about violent rape. He told Catherine how thrilling it would be to watch him have sex with another woman, and that she would have mind-blowing orgasms just watching. They enjoyed talking about it, but at this point, all of that was just a fantasy. By the time they were 35 years old, David not only convinced Catherine that this was a good idea, but they escalated the plan to involve kidnapping and actual violence. Catherine wanted to watch David rape a bound and gagged woman, and over the next several months, 
They planned every detail of the crime. They even developed a system where Catherine would choose the victims, and they would go and pick up the woman, and Catherine would decide if she was okay with David raping her. If she spotted someone she approved of, she'd say, I've got the munchies. And if David liked the victim, he'd reply, I've got the munchies too. They figured it would be easy to lure a woman into their car with another woman present. And for months, David practiced picking women up to stock and planning potential kidnappings. He just needed the right opportunity. In 1986, David was working in a spare parts yard. He was well-liked by his coworkers and described as reliable, competent, and friendly. But one day, he met Mary Nielsen, a 22-year-old psychology student with just a year left before graduation. And she came to the junkyard looking for new tires for her car. And David told her he could give her a better deal himself and gave her his phone number and address. Mary worked part-time at a deli to make money for school, so she was happy to take the deal. So they set up a time for her to come over to David's house. She arrived at the house on October 6, 1986, around 5 o'clock. The small house was shabby and run down. The paint was peeling and faded, and the yard was covered in weeds. And the garden was just filled with mostly dead flowers. She walked up to the house, knocked on the door, and David answered it and invited her in. And almost immediately, he pulled out a knife and dragged her to the bedroom. Mary was young and pretty with long brown hair, and Catherine may have viewed her as a threat, but she approved. They then chained Mary to the bed and gagged her, and David raped her repeatedly while Catherine watched, even cheering him on, giving him suggestions on what he should do, and asking David what turned him on the most during the violent attacks. When he was done, they then drove Mary to Glen Eagle State Forest in the semi-rural area of Bedfordale. They drove her to a deserted spot near Albany Highway, and David raped her again, and then used a nylon cord and a tree branch to strangle her to death. They then put her body in a shallow grave in the park, and David stabbed her in the chest before mutilating her body and burying her. He had actually read that piercing the body would speed up the decomposition process. They then ditched her car next to a police station, which is actually a good place to abandon a vehicle and make sure it doesn't get found right away. Because it actually took the police six days after Mary was reported missing to even realize that was her car parked at the police station. About two weeks later, David and Catherine started hunting for another victim. They'd had so much fun the first time that they decided, you know what, let's do it again. So they drove around for hours on the highways looking for vulnerable young women. Susanna Candy was walking along the Sterling Highway in Claremont, and she was from a prominent family and an honor student at Hollywood High School. Her father, Dr. Douglas Candy, was the top ophthalmologist surgeon in Western Australia. Dr. Candy was protective and didn't like it when his young daughter took a part-time job at a restaurant. He would even meet her after work to make sure she got home safely. But for some reason, on October 20th, 1986, she was walking home alone. And that's when David and Catherine rolled up and offered the 15-year-old a ride. Susanna saw that there was a woman in the car, and overall the couple looked nice and friendly. So she decided to take him up on their offer. But as soon as she got into the car, David threatened her immediately with a knife to her throat, and they tied her hands together. They then brought her back to their house on Three More House Street. 
and forced her to write letters to her parents. She wrote that she ran away from home and that she was staying with her friends in Queensland, and she said she was safe and would be home soon. She just needed some time to herself. She was then gagged and chained to the bed just like Mary Nielsen, and David proceeded to rape her, and Catherine joined in this time. And they ended up keeping Susanna as prisoner for several days, raping and torturing her each day. At some point, David tried to strangle Susanna with a cord. She started screaming and freaking out. And she actually fought him so hard that they had to force her to take sleeping pills in order to calm her down. Catherine was also getting jealous and tired of sharing David with another woman. She assumed David would eventually kill Susanna just like the last victim. But after Susanna was unconscious from the pills, David handed Catherine the cord and said, Prove you love me. Catherine then put the cord around Susanna's throat and slowly tightened it until she stopped breathing. She was pleased to know she had proved her love and loyalty to David. And then the two of them buried Susanna next to Mary in a shallow grave in Glen Eagle State Forest. They also dropped one of the letters Susanna wrote in the mail right after, and two weeks later they mailed the second one. Her parents obviously knew something was amiss, and they reported her missing almost immediately when she didn't return home that night. They actually received the letters that she wrote, but they didn't believe a word that they said. They knew that their daughter would not run away like that, and immediately they feared that she was dead. Unfortunately, the letters reinforced the police's theory that she was a runaway, and so they never actually went and looked for her. How crazy is that? Yeah, wow. Literally. They're just like, oh yeah, she probably ran away. Well, here's the letters to prove it. <laughs> Meanwhile, the parent, and I never understand this with, with you know, missing persons mm-hmm. investigations, like police don't take it seriously when the parents are like, no, our daughter would have literally came home. Right. She's 15, first of all. So that should be a red flag that a 15 year old's mm-hmm. going clear across, you know, yeah. the country to, to stay with her friends and not just up and leave her parents. Yeah. I mean, super ridiculous. The police just draws to conclusions like that. Of- yeah. Meanwhile, she's literally been killed. right how sad is that it's just unbelievable and then just a week later Catherine and david had their eyes on their next victim 31 year old noeline patterson noeline worked as a bar manager at a golf club she was outgoing and charming and very attractive she had previously worked as a flight attendant and lived with her mom in eastern perth and when she left work on november 1st her car ran out of gas on the canning highway David and Catherine happened to see her on the side of the road next to her vehicle, and she was relieved when she saw them pull up. And what's crazy is she actually knew David and Catherine, because a few weeks before, they'd actually helped her wallpaper a room in her house. And so when they offered her a ride, she hopped right in. But as soon as she was inside the car, they tied her up at knife point. They then brought her back to Morehouse Street, and they chained her to the bed and gagged her. And again, she was repeatedly raped, just like the first two victims. And the plan this time was to kill her later that night, but David apparently got attached. She was exceptionally beautiful, and he seemed to be captivated by her. So he ended up keeping her for three days, raping her multiple times a day, and just, you know, putting off any plans to kill her. And again, it didn't take very long before Catherine was fed up with how attached David was becoming. The jealousy was building up, so much so that she finally held a knife to Noeline's throat and threatened to kill her herself if David didn't kill Noeline immediately. 
So David then forced Noeline to overdose on sleeping pills, and then he strangled her to death while Catherine watched. They then drove her to the forest to bury her near the other victims. And Catherine allegedly enjoyed throwing dirt in her face before they buried her. After Noeline, they moved on to their next victim's abduction almost immediately. On November 5th, they saw Denise Brown, a 21-year-old computer programmer and part-time babysitter, waiting at a bus stop on Sterling Highway. And the same thing happened to her that happened to each of the other victims. David and Catherine rolled up, asked her if she wanted a ride. And when she agreed, they took her back to their house, where she was again chained to the bed and raped repeatedly. At some point, they forced her to call her parents to say that she was safe and no one should look for her. They ended up keeping her for two days, and then Catherine decided it was time for her to die. That afternoon, they took her to Pine Plantation in Wanneroo, and they drove into the forest to wait for it to get dark out. David raped her in the car while they waited, and Catherine watched. Once it was dark, he dragged Denise into the forest and raped her again. During the attack, he stabbed her in the neck with a dull knife. Blood was bubbling through the wounds in her neck, but it wasn't enough to kill her. So Catherine got a better knife from the car and stabbed Denise in the chest, while David raped her again. They then dug a grave at the edge of the plantation and pushed Denise into it. And while they were covering her with dirt, Denise suddenly sat up and gasped for air. The knife wounds hadn't actually killed her. She even tried to get up, but David hit her in the head with an axe to stun her. He then hit her again and cracked her skull. Now sure that she was dead, they buried her in the shallow grave they had dug. Catherine and David just went berserk over a very short amount of time. I mean, literally going back to back to back with their victims. And then they would go on to their next victim, Kate Moore, which would actually end up being their last one. Now, before we get into Kate Moore and what happened with her, I'm going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So on November 9th, which was again just a few days later after they had murdered Denise Brown, Kate Moore was walking through a wealthy neighborhood in a suburb of Perth. It was late, and she had been out drinking with friends and was actually pretty drunk, when a car pulled over and a nice-looking couple offered her a ride. Not thinking anything of it, she got in and directed them to drive her to her house. And during the drive, the woman said, I've got the munchies. Have you got the munchies? And that's when they pulled up to her house and Kate realized there was no handle on the door. She was trapped. David then pulled a butcher's knife from his boot and held it to her throat. And she asked if they planned to rape her or kill her. And David said, we'll only rape you if you're good. They then drove her to Morehouse Street and forced her inside their house. Kate figured at this point that she probably had a 200% chance of being murdered and only 5% chance of escaping. And the next few hours were very, very strange. Her captors shared a joint with her and forced her to dance for them to the song Romeo and Juliet by Dire Straits. And obviously this was scary as hell, so much so that she was crying as she was dancing. It was literally a little psychological torture. They also asked her a bunch of personal questions about her life and who she was. And then they put on a VHS tape of Rocky starring Sylvester Stallone. They then forced her to shower and she thought it was strange because she knew David was about to rape her. David was wearing a short, mustard-colored dressing gown. The first time she was raped was just after midnight, and while David violently assaulted her, Catherine just stood nearby, taking notes. They then forced her to shower again and then chained her to the bed, and at some point she asked for a pen and paper to write goodbye letters to her loved ones, 
but during the night she secretly hid evidence all over the house. She thought that after they killed her someone might find something that proved she was there. She shoved her lipstick into the couch and she made a distinct drawing on a scrap of paper and hid it. She also put her bag and cigarettes into the ceiling and she touched everything she absolutely could in every room in order to leave behind fingerprints and DNA. It's actually really smart. She was then put in a guest bedroom to sleep and hoping someone might hear her, she started screaming as loud as she could. And then that's when David could be heard saying, sleeping arrangements have changed. He then dragged her into the bedroom he shared with Catherine and raped her repeatedly. And when he was done, he handcuffed her foot to his and forced pills into her mouth. But Kate hid them under her tongue. And once David was asleep, she spit them out, shoved them under the mattress. And she thought if she fell asleep, she might never wake up. So she kept herself alert as best as she could. In the morning, David made her call her mom and say she had gotten drunk the night before and was just crashing with a friend. And he warned her that if she'd said anything else, he'd kill her like the others. Kate wasn't a big drinker though, and she hoped her mom would either be mad enough or worried enough to start calling her friends to look for her, but she didn't. After David went to work, Kate thought again about her chances of being killed versus escaping. She thought she had a 50-50 chance of surviving if she made a break for it. So she decided to try and befriend and manipulate Catherine, and hopefully she'd let her guard down. Before she could try out her plan, someone knocked on the front door. Catherine was expecting this person for a drug deal that they had set up, so she left to answer it and didn't lock up Kate before leaving the room. And with nothing left to lose, Kate rushed to the window, broke the lock and shoved it open. She then climbed out and landed on the driveway, hitting her head against the concrete. She then got up and started running as fast as she could barefoot across the street. She frantically knocked on four doors and no one answered. She hopped over a gate and was attacked by David's dog. She then ran around a corner to a store parking lot and begged a man standing outside for help. And that's when she was brought to Palmyra Police Station and talked to rookie officer Laura Hancock. Once Kate identified David Burney as one of her captors, Detective Sergeant Paul Ferguson took over the case. They had multiple missing person cases of young women, and they had all come from backgrounds similar to Kate's. They were normal middle-class young women or teens with happy home lives and no reason to run away. The couple that had abducted Kate had given her fake names, but she actually saw David's real name on a medicine bottle in the house. She had also memorized the address and phone number and she could describe the kidnappers in detail. She said the woman was in her mid-30s, short and skinny with high cheekbones and a permanent frown, and the man was also mid-30s, thin with a long hooked nose. Kate then went with the police to the address she remembered and positively identified the house. But when they got there, no one was home. Officers were then sent to David's work to pick him up. And they waited until Catherine got home to arrest her too. But they interrogated them separately. Catherine said she had no idea who Kate was and had never met her. And she refused to say anything else without David. David, however, claimed that Kate came to his house willingly. And that they hung out, smoked some marijuana together, and they had sex. And that it was all consensual. But when police searched the home, they found everything that Kate said she left behind, including her drawing. And they found a VHS tape of Rocky in the VCR, just like she had said. And David was the first to confess. He admitted to raping and killing Mary Nielsen, Susanna Candy, Noeline Patterson, and Denise Brown, and told the police where to find the bodies. Allegedly, a detective used a hot soldering iron to force David to confess, but this is just a rumor. 
When they told Catherine that David told them everything, she caved as well. She admitted she was a willing accomplice, and she said she took photos of David while he was raping their victims. Catherine also showed no emotion or remorse. She never cried and was very matter-of-fact about her role in the sexual torture and sadistic murders. She said she would get jealous of the pretty young women they abducted, but she got her own pleasure from watching and documenting the rapes. She was absolutely completely obsessed with David and would do anything to bring him pleasure. She signed a confession that claimed she had released Kate because she wanted the murders to stop, even though she liked doing it. And she even volunteered to take the investigators to the grave sites. So the officers took the couple in handcuffs to the pine plantation in Wanneroo, where they had left the body of Denise Brown, and they located her between a line of trees. They then proceeded to go to Glen Eagle State Forest to find the rest. And after checking multiple areas, David found the gravesite of Mary Nielsen and Susanna Candy. When they were digging up Susanna, Catherine explained why she participated in the murders. She was quoted as saying, Because I wanted to see how strong I was within my inner self. I didn't feel a thing. It was like I expected. I was prepared to follow him to the end of the earth and do anything to see that his desires were satisfied. She was a female, and females hurt and destroy males. Catherine seemed anxious to show them the final grave herself. A short distance away, they found the body of Noeline Patterson. Catherine actually spit on the grave and said that David liked this one too much, so she hated her. And this was the first time she showed any emotion at all, and it was pure anger towards the victim. They tried again to get the real reason she participated in the murders, and she repeated that she could never say no to David. At this point, the media picked up the story and started calling this case the Morehouse Murders. And people were absolutely shocked and horrified by the, this murderous, evil couple and their apparent lack of remorse. A 19-year-old woman came forward and said David and Catherine had once tried to pick her up when she was walking home from her university. Catherine had waved her over, but before she got into the car, she saw a young person unconscious in the back seat. And she wasn't sure if it was a male or a female, but the whole thing just freaked her out. So she turned down the ride and they just drove away. And this person that she had seen in the back seat happened to be Denise Brown, the last known murder victim. She was actually drugged and unconscious in the back seat. When the police searched the Morehouse Street house, they found a newspaper ad from September 1986. It was circled in red ink and said, Urgent, looking for a lonely person. Prefer female 18 to 24 years old. Share single room flat. The couple had actually placed this ad in the newspaper in order to lure in their first victim. And no one knows if it worked, which means that there might be other victims out there, including Cheryl Renwick, who disappeared in May 1986, and Barbara Western, who disappeared in June 1986. But on November 12th, the couple was charged with four counts of murder, two counts of aggravated sexual assault, and one count of deprivation of liberty. They came to court dressed casually. Catherine was even barefoot, and neither of them had any legal representation. The next day, workers excavated sections of a drain near David and Catherine's house, and they found women's underwear, a pair of women's shoes, and a small piece of bone. The police searched the drain for hours, but didn't find anything else. In February 1987, David and Catherine attended a hearing and pled guilty to all charges. David thought if he showed that he was sorry, he'd get a more lenient sentence, and he claimed he was a sex addict who couldn't control himself. And after he raped his victims, he said he had to kill them so he couldn't be identified. He also said he was pleading guilty to spare the victims' families any more pain. And while awaiting trial, David was attacked by other inmates in jail and injured enough 
to need medical attention. And when Catherine found out about this, she was so upset that David was hurt, she literally fell to her knees sobbing. The trial was in March 1987 and literally lasted just 30 minutes. Catherine attacked the guards violently on her way into the court, and she kept fighting and screaming at them not to touch her. And as soon as she saw David, she instantly calmed down. It was as if David cast a spell on her. As David's sentence was read, Catherine stood behind him, stroking his hands with her finger lovingly. They were both sentenced to four consecutive life sentences, and the judge added, never to be released to David's record. Catherine would be eligible for parole in 2007 after serving 20 years. And when asked why he pled guilty, David motioned toward the family of their victims and said, it's the least I could do. Catherine had to be dragged away from David, kicking and screaming. She even spit at the guards. And she was brought outside to face an angry crowd outside the courthouse. David was brought out next, and the crowd threw garbage and demanded his death. And David just smiled and blew a kiss. Neither of them ever appealed their sentence. The Australian Attorney General publicly said it was extremely unlikely that they'd ever be released. David was sent to a maximum security prison and got in multiple fights with other inmates. He was violent and aggressive. He was injured several times, but the injuries he caused were always much more severe. Eventually, though, he was moved to solitary confinement and then to converted death row cells. When that facility closed down in 1990, he was moved to another maximum security prison in Western Australia. Catherine was sent to Bandy Up Women's Prison, which houses prisoners of all security classifications. About 10% of the population there are classified as maximum security offenders, like her. And over the next four years, they exchanged 2,600 letters. They were never allowed any direct contact, though. And Catherine blamed herself for them getting caught. She also wrote letters to her kids to explain why she left. And in the letter, she showed remorse for her crimes. Her kids visited her in prison, and so did David's first wife, Carrie. And Catherine said she acted out during the trial because she was detoxing from heroin. She said she was holding on to hope that she would get out one day and be able to see David again. David appealed to a judge in 1990 to be allowed to see her. He said if he couldn't see Catherine, he'd kill himself. And the judge denied his appeal. Prison officials confiscated his computer in 1993 and found massive amounts of pornography on it. He said he still suffered from sex addiction. Catherine stopped writing to him in the late 90s and started focusing on her own parole. She worked in the prison library, started painting and participated in musical productions. As you can tell, maximum security prison in Australia is much different than maximum security prison here in the United States. Oh, yeah. Especially uh, being able to look up pornography on the computer. I mean, that would never be possible here. No way. So, yeah, I mean, they have a much uh, more, I guess lenient yeah less intense maximum security prison it's pretty life crazy there. how they're giving them access to the internet yeah yeah i mean if you're a serial killer here in the u.s you're probably going to be solitary confinement oh yeah you know and or be, on death row and be lucky to get a little radio yeah seriously like let alone a tv or something yeah yeah, yeah it's just crazy how like prison for you know it's different for maximum security inmates in other uh-huh. countries it's wild damn yeah internet in an australia's prison that's almost inviting you know i know it probably wasn't even that bad for him yeah still got to feed his uh his porn addiction addiction. yeah exactly but Catherine also had some run-ins with guards she was caught with a knife and manipulated prison officials more than once including passing letters between teenage murderers jessica 
Stasinowski and Valerie Parishmoody after they were separated. When Catherine stopped answering his letters, David fell into a deep depression, was put on medication, and in 2005, he was charged with sexually assaulting another inmate. And that October, a clerical error in the prison system cut off his antidepressants. And at 4.30 a.m. on October 7, 2005, David was found dead in his cell. He had hung himself from an air vent with his sheet, and he was 54 years old at the time of his death. And despite his history of violence, a former guard called him a model prisoner and claimed he rescued and cared for injured animals. Catherine wasn't allowed to go to David's funeral, and no one claimed his body, and he was just buried in an unmarked grave. Catherine was denied parole in 2007 and 2009, and upon request from the families of her victims, she'll likely never get out of prison. She's also only the third woman in Australian history to have paperwork marked never to be released. Again, she tried for parole in 2010 and 2016, and she was denied again. And her parole was likely denied due to Kate Moore, the one victim to have escaped. Because in 2017, Kate started a campaign to end mandatory parole reviews, which took place every three years, in order to stop the re-traumatization of victims. Catherine's youngest son, Peter, says he's been harassed and assaulted because he's related to her. And he actually publicly supported Kate's campaign and said his mother should be put to death. Catherine's actually still alive and now nearly 70 years old. And she's the longest serving inmate at Bandy Up and has remained one of Western Australia's most notorious serial killers. And their infamous house, the Morehouse Street house, is still standing. It's actually had five different owners over the last few decades and was sold to new owners this past January for 425000 which was 34000 less than the asking price. And by law, the new owners must be informed about the crimes that took place there, which I can't even imagine why you'd want to move yeah. into a house with that kind of crimes with what were committed there and that type of energy. Uh, so, so. Talk just about bulldoze these houses yeah. where these serial killers are doing this yeah. heinous shit. I was going to say, talk about bad energy. Like, why would you want to move in, into that? Like, yeah. Jesus. And honestly, I, I think Catherine deserves to stay in prison for, oh, for yeah. her role. I mean, she sta- stood by and basically supported right. him and, and it participated in participated. the abduction of yep. these victims and ultimately the deaths of these women. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, super sad. It's just a s- super fucked up story of... Oh, it really is. Like, I think a, a mentally ill individual, clearly, I mean, from birth, I think he was pretty much oh, yeah. screwed. Something came to wrong, his life. For just, sure. You know, this sexual issues of his and i don't know it's it's a i'm sure the psychology there is extremely complicated and yeah and there's probably an explanation for it that i'm just not qualified to give but i think it's pretty clear that mm-hmm. you know his his upbringing had a lot to do with his life and what he yeah. ended up doing and then it is very odd though that Catherine was you know so devoted to him but then again i mean to find out that she was on heroin it's probably likely that David was like feeding her heroin to keep her yeah. so attached to him. Definitely. I think David was enabling her in lots of ways that made, made it to where she was benefiting from. Yeah. And I mean, maybe, with him. maybe she loved him, but then again, like how, how can you love somebody like David? Shit. I mean, the dick can't he's be that good. Monster. No, you know? no. So, well, and he's, he just wants to go have rape other women. So it's like, mm-hmm. what, I don't even know and she what's was, even the point of that relationship. Ultimately, she, she's mentally just as fucked up as David for, yeah, for, yeah. for, for you know, partaking in that. So, and I feel bad for their kids. I mean, their kids mm-hmm. have to live with, I mean, these guys are 
probably some of the most infamous serial killers in Australia Mm -hmm. and definitely the most infamous couple. So I can't imagine, you know, having, Oh yeah. You know, the last name of Bernie and (laughs) people recognize that right away. And you're related to David. I'm sure that's really, really hard. God, you almost got to like change your last name. Seriously. Why would you want to have, yeah, I wouldn't want to be related to him at all. I would definitely change my name. Yeah. And this one is just like, I don't know. This one is just hard because there is so much like conflicting information about this. Mm -hmm. And there's so many rumors. That's the main thing is there's so many rumors in this that we don't even know hundred percent are true. I mean, we know that, you know, he killed these poor women. Well, the research for this was just really messy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of gaps in their stories and their timelines and their Mm -hmm. history and stuff. So hopefully, hopefully this all made sense in some way. And, you know, hopefully it was, uh, I guess it's kind of interesting of how it all played out, but yeah. I mean, it's nothing that we haven't seen before, but right for Australia, this was a very big deal. This was, mm-hmm. this was, you know, I don't want to say there's as much murder and, and killing in Australia, yeah. but there is, I mean, there's just, I mean, there's way less people there mm-hmm. for one, but you know, yeah. And, and another example of couple serial killers, cause yeah. we just covered, uh, you know, the toy box killer had an yep. accomplice as well who yep. was his girl yeah. as well. So. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. These couples that go and do this kind of shit, like it really is hard to wrap your head around. It is. What drives people to this point where they're just... They're it, both in agreement to do this type of shit. Yeah, like, yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Why? Yeah. It's so senseless and sad. Mm-hmm. These poor girls that were just trying to get a ride home yeah. end up being tortured and raped repeatedly right it's, it's just sick it is I mean, at the end of the day so it's absolutely horrible and tragic story mm-hmm. and yeah definitely definitely want to remember the victims. right that's the whole purpose of even covering these stories exactly to, it's about the victims and, and their recognizing families. what they went through and, and how yeah, what they you went know through. how horrible this was and obviously mm-hmm. there's less to be learned like yeah can't trust can't trust anybody you can't trust no a nice looking couple that offers you a ride home i mean right. it's just like you have to be so careful these days so for sure so be safe out there and we'll be back next week we're going to kind of switch gears here and we've been doing a lot of death and torture and you know I'm, i need yeah. a i need a little break a little you know cleanse from from all oh, this me too. violence and so right. we've got some really interesting episodes we're going to get back in the paranormal world which i'm very excited yes. about there's some really good episodes coming up here so Hopefully you stay with us and yeah, yeah, we'll be back next week with another episode of lights out podcasts. If you enjoyed this one, definitely make sure you're subscribed Apple podcasts and YouTube. We really appreciate it. Ratings and reviews always are great as well. And yeah, that's it for us today. So until next time, lights out everybody.